Proverbs 12, 1 through 15. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. The thoughts of the righteous are just, the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. A man is condemned, I'm sorry, a man is commended according to his good sense, but one of twisted mind is despised. Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers, but the root of the righteous bears fruit. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. trouble. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This past week I was uh, jogging at night near my home and uh, had to use the restroom. And right near my uh, pathway was this park that actually had been built not that long ago, within the past five years. And the park has a, a relatively new restroom with uh, two different doors. What's interesting about this restroom, though, is that you could tell right next to the doors, about mid-level, there's these marks. And it's obvious that signs had been removed. And in its place were two signs on the doors. The two signs had white triangles. So initially, this restroom that had been built, what, maybe five years ago, had once said men and women, and they were torn down. So I went inside the restroom, had to use it, and I expected to see a single stall where you lock the door and that's what it was, but it actually had multiple stalls and a men's facility as well. And I thought to myself, and I just imagined, here I am, an adult man using the restroom and a little girl comes in because there's no sign that says men or women is just open. A little com girl comes in and uses the restroom right next to me. Obviously, something is amiss. And in our day and age, that is the norm. But I remember about 20 years ago when I was in seminary, we would talk about biblical roles of manhood and womanhood. And just simply to talk about 
the distinction of what it means to be a man and a woman, it was somewhat controversial. Today, just speaking about the fact that there is a difference between a man and woman in any way is more than controversial. It's thought to be against the norm, against society. This is the world that we live in. And it's so important then to counteract that idea with what God's word says is truth and not simply what society, a shifting society in its cultural norms and values believes truth to be. So we look at scripture and we say, the Bible does give a clear distinctiveness between a man and a woman. It is possible that one day this message that is being recorded on YouTube with algorithms changing and being saved, maybe one day for preaching such a message, I'll be imprisoned. I mean, you might think, oh, no, that's never going to happen. But there are many things that have, we've thought of as never happening that are happening. But yet, here is God's word. It stands the test of time. And so from it, what I'd like to do in these last few messages from Proverbs as we end this summer with Proverbs is to first this week speak specifically to the men of our church. And I'd like to tell you what it means to be a good man, it specifically coming from Proverbs chapter 12. And then next week, we'll talk about what it means to be an excellent woman from the very famous passage that I think a lot of women have a, a challenge with is Proverbs 31. And hopefully through it, you'll see both passages speaking so wonderfully about God's design for a man and a woman and how it should guide and direct the way that we view life. With that said, we'll look at what it means to be a good man, focusing on three sets of characteristics. First, a good man is disciplined and discerning. Secondly, a good man is humble and merciful. And then third, a good man is favored and free. So first, a good man is disciplined and discerning. Proverbs 12 doesn't specifically speak only to men. So yes, this can refer to women as well, but surely it includes men. So I was looking through Proverbs and seeing, wow, this is a great list, a great picture of what a man should be who walks with the Lord. And so specifically in light of verse two, referencing the good man, I'd like to look at these characteristics of discipline and discernment. And they really do go hand in hand, but perhaps it's not what we think it to be because here's the problem. The word discipline in our day, in our culture has really gotten a bad rap. The word discipline is the Hebrew word musar, and it's mentioned 30 times in the book of Proverbs. But what's interesting about this Hebrew word is that it's in English, it's actually translated in two different ways. One is discipline and the second is instruction. And that's actually important because there is an instructive value in discipline. And I think too often we think of discipline simply in a corporal context, in the physical discipline of perhaps children. But the whole, the word has much more to say than just simply corporal discipline. It actually speaks about the idea that all people and all men must be open to the discipline of the Lord and of others. It, if we are not open to it, 
then we will miss out on what it means to really be one who is a, a child of God and a son of God. Hebrews chapter 12 makes this so clear for us in Hebrews 12, 8 through 9. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I was speaking with a, a mom this week, and she was telling me that she was so glad, and this is someone who's not in our church, so glad that her son was being told by her pastors and, and those who were spending time actually spend uh, discipling their son, youth pastors and leaders of the church. And they were telling him that he's, he's really struggling and sinning against God because of his white lies. Now, I know this, this teenage son, relatively speaking, he's a really good guy. Like if you meet him, you'd say, oh, that's a good guy. But these pastors were speaking into his life because his mom had noticed this pattern of white lies. And white lies being things like, you know, go clean your room. And instead of cleaning the room, they take their book, one book that's on the floor, and lift it up and stack it. But everything else is a disaster. And, you know, this small white lie of saying, well, I already cleaned my room. We might say, oh, is that really a big deal? That's not a big deal. But... Here's the thing about sin is that it's a tangled web. It starts in one place and left unchecked and encountered and gone through the process of discipline. This young man could eventually become a deceptive liar that will destroy him and others around him. And if these pastors and leaders and elders are speaking into his life and saying, we care about you enough to tell you that you need to stop sinning. The discipline of the Lord is not meant to destroy someone or to hurt their feelings. It's meant to correct and train so that their life will be a life of flourishing and thriving. Discipline is never in the Lord punitive. It's always corrective and prosperous for the, the goal of prospering. And so we, in our world, far too often coddle each other, and those around us because we're so afraid to injure self-esteem. We think to ourselves, just to simply say a word of correction will so hamper this person that will destroy them. And it's quite the opposite as we see through scripture. That in actuality, if you do not discipline, you're not treating your son, and if this is you, dad, your son as a son. Discipline shows that this son belongs to you. This is your son. And when we are in a world of coddling and so concerned about someone's self-esteem, it is no wonder that the basic fundamental tenets of our society and of life are in complete disarray. It makes sense that we no longer are willing to call a woman a woman and a man a man when our whole life has been upended by making sure that the feelings of a person are paramount to everything else in that person's life. So Proverbs says that has to change. And it looks very differently. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12 again. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof 
is stupid. The word stupid there is the Hebrew word for a beast, oxen. You know, that is brutish, unwilling to yield, and dense and thick. And so it's a, it's a funny word. It's a word that isn't so bad, but it is pretty bad. And this person who hates reproof, the man who hates reproof and correction is stupid. Whoever loves discipline actually is a, is a gainer of knowledge. They're always ready to learn, ready to change, ready to be corrected. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. There's an assumption there that every child, because of sin, is born with folly. And the means of correction is the rod of discipline. It has a purpose. And the purpose is not to make them feel good about themselves. The purpose is to drive out folly forever and ever because folly is a dangerous path. It leads to stupidity. And then chapter three, verse 11 through 12, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The good man needs discipline. The good man is open to discipline. The good man understands that even though he might not want suffering in his life, he understands the place of discipline in his life. And if it's from the Lord, he receives it, albeit it's sometimes with real pain and sorrows. So to the men of our church, the question that remains is, are you open to discipline? Or is your first reaction to say is, I don't want it. I don't want not only words of correction, I don't want anyone to say anything that counter man's what I believe to be true. If that's the case, if we hate reproof, if we refuse instruction and discipline in our lives, it's not my word, it's God's word. You are stupid. I am stupid. I, admittedly, there are many times in my life I've been stupid. Yesterday, we had a meeting with a, a number of our Axis mentors for high school. I was gathering them around and, you know, I had my ideas of, okay, this is how I imagine access to be. And, and then as we started going over everything and listening to everyone's opinions, what a, what a treasure it was to hear actually everyone's perspective and then take that into account and say, wow, although I came in with my own vision, it, it sort of shifted and I think into a much better way. I'm excited for this year to come for both uh, middle school and high school access to youth. But it, it takes the willingness for all of us to say, my plan, my ways, isn't always inherently the best. But when we think that is the case and we refuse to yield, the Bible says we are stupid. That's a very strong word. I know we don't like to hear that word, but I've been stupid in the past before, and I am very willing to admit that. So to fathers, to husbands, to youth mentors, to gospel-trained teachers, to brothers in our church, we have to remember that, first of all, there is a tendency of us to not be open to the people around us to, who care for us, who actually speak truth to us, and we close ourselves to him. And when we do that, we really 
really impact our own souls. Listen to what God's word also says about those of us who are stupid, who refuse to listen to God's word and to accept correction. Proverbs calls this person a fool, and a fool lacks discernment. They're unable to tell the difference between right and wrong. So imagine the person who is addicted to drugs, to opioids, and they're so strung up on that drug that when people around them who care for them say, stop taking this drug, it's killing you, it's making you bankrupt, it's destroying your life, it's driving away people who care for you, they're so strung up on it, they can't tell. It's just changed the way they think and their determination of what is prosperous for them, what is pleasurable, what is good, is so twisted in their scope of thinking that they cannot see anything outside of what they believe to be right and wrong. It's that picture that Proverbs 12 gives to us as what the stupid man is like. Proverbs 12, five through eight says this, the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The, wick, the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more but the house of the righteous will stand. A man is commended according to his good sense, but one of twisted mind is despised. So there's the contrast of the good sense man and the twisted mind man. And before that is the description of this wickedness. They're consumed by blood. They don't care about death and murder. And again, in our society, in our world, whether it's thinking about the unborn whether it's thinking about life itself and how we treat others in our respect and dignity and care for others, there's no sense of that at all. It's just whatever I believe my mind to say, that's what's true. It's the twisted mind. And that's the, the description that Proverbs is giving to us. This person only does and sees what is right in his own eyes, as Judges tells us. And so verse 12 describes this evil man this way, further saying, whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers. They want what evildoers have. Evildoers, so often in the Bible, we see it in Psalm 73 and other places, sometimes are very prosperous, wealthy, powerful, famous. I mean, all we need to do is look in our world and there is definitely no link to faith in Christ and automatic financial prosperity as much as some sectors and wrong sectors of um, people who try to put a link between believing in God and prosperity. It is not there. And the Bible has so many places that points that out. But there is clearly many people who do not know Christ and who are very prosperous, very successful. Actually, they're the majority in our world. So in the sports world, in entertainment, in finance, in politics and government, mostly it's non-Christians who do not know Christ who are most successful, achieve the highest of standards. And it is very tempting as men in particular to think, I want that. Whether you want it for yourself or you want it for your children, which is still wanting it for yourself in the end, which is so often us trying to live our dreams and our lives to our own children. And so we strive so hard 
to make that happen. And perhaps in doing so, it's at the expense of our children's souls or your own soul. Beware, men, young men, of the successes of others because it's out there. People are successful in your high schools, universities, in graduate programs, at work, everywhere you will see success. And it is a bright shining gold star that is the siren song of your soul. And it will tug at you and pull at you and say, you want this above everything else. And you will be tempted to give up everything, including your soul, just so you could have that piece of gold. But that gold flitters away. It never lasts. It fades. It will be gone. Beware of other children's successes. You think it's worth investing your time and energy and expenses into your kids so much that they will have opportunities. But in the process, you are coveting the spoils of evildoers at the cost of their soul and yours. And it really is the Lord's discipline. Sometimes the Lord will, because he loves you, he will actually bring about discipline into your life. Maybe that means cutting off all financial ability. Maybe it means that for that child that you're spending your whole life on, and they actually succeed to that type of success, by the time they're an adult, they've turned, totally turned away from the Lord. They've rejected him. And now you're crying out and saying, what did I do? What did I spend all my time and energy? Yes, they're successful, but they hate Christ because they say, you know what? That's what you were like. You invested in that. I don't want that. I'm off on my own. Or maybe tragedy strikes. Maybe they're taken away from you. And all that time, maybe cancer strikes. Suddenly, everything that you thought was so worthwhile, you spend all of your life's energies, you pour it out. I speak not as one who is um, a master of this, but more as a a fellow sufferer, as one who is just as guilty, someone who wants certain success for my children. But as I've gone to a certain path, maybe I'm a little bit more advanced than some of you and behind some of you. But I see the successes of some of my children. And then afterward, I think, wow, we poured out so much into that. And it's not as great as I thought it would be. It's not as significant. It's not as important. Discipline keeps us from folly, from stupidity, because our tendency is to be stupid. That's just who I am. And I need the discipline of the Lord, trials that come. I don't want it, but I need it. And it happens. So are you open to correction from the Lord and from other people? We need to be. We must be. And when we are, it's because God loves you that much that he's actually willing to say, I care about you. Therefore, get ready for this trial that's going to turn you back to myself. The second characteristic is humility and mercy, being humble and merciful. That's what a good man is. Look at verses 8 through 9 again. A man is commended according to his good sense, 
but one of twisted mind is despised, which we talked about. But then this next verse ties into the previous verse. Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. One of the great challenges of men is to prove their power and strength and intelligence over others. I think that's inherent in sometimes in being a man is that this competitive nature to prove yourself. I mean, it happens in the animal kingdom. It happens amongst men, the male elks, male bears, male, male lions. They will fight sometimes to the death so that they could woo the female so that they could control territory. And that's not that much different than human beings, human males. Uh, Draymond Green, I think most of you know who he is. You know, he was picked in the second round. And I think some of you know this is that he, what's interesting about him is that he can recall, I th- I'm not exactly sure what number he was picked, like 36, 32nd, something like that. But he can list off in order everyone who was picked before him. And he's, he'll say, I'm better than this person, I'm better than this person, and it just goes down the list. And it really is playing with that chip on your shoulder. And sometimes having that chip motivates you and drives you to be better, sometimes to destroy, to do whatever you can. It's sort of the nature so often of men, the desire to prove yourself, to prove that you are better, you're stronger, you're faster, you're smarter. And you can outwit, you can outthink, you're better than everybody else. But according to Proverbs, that is your undoing. And Proverbs describes this person as the one who has the twisted mind. Because here's why it's twisted. Their sense of reality is twisted. For this person, appearance and image is everything. That's why I look at it. He plays the great man and lacks bread. He plays the great man and lacks bread. Appearance and image. You have, it's better to look like the great man, even though you're starving to death. So you put on nice clothing and walk into the room to dominate. But in your heart of hearts, you're scared and a wimp. You're weak, but you want to look strong. It is the man who spends all of his money on a, a really awesome sports car, super expensive, puts on nice clothing, but their credit card debt is just to the roof. And they have nothing other than that car and the piece of clothing that they're wearing because they want to prove through the image that they're really special. But the Bible says, Proverbs says, this person is not special. He's stupid. He's a fool. It's the father who is so busy working to make their child a star athlete, to get noticed by college coaches, while this child is turning further and further away from Christ. And no matter what we say, our actions are showing, we care more about that than we care about our our child growing to follow Christ. And Proverbs says, that's stupidity. That's a fool. That's a foolish man. It's the husband who is screaming at his wife, telling him, I did this for you. And so they're working to buy this house, to do everything, and they're just absolutely pouring it on to their wife and their children while not leading their family at all spiritually. That's a twisted mind where everything is backwards. What is real is now fake, and what is fake is 
what is real. Proverbs 13, 7 puts it bluntly. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Pretentiousness. Pretense. What a fool. The opposite of such a man is the humble man. He's commended for good sense, and good sense is seeing things as they truly are in light of God's word. So the wealth is not found in this world, it's found in Christ. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They see what is true and what is lasting, and it matters completely. Now, I have a a couple of friends who are missionaries, They're in a Middle Eastern country, serving the Lord, husband and wife. Both of them are doctors. Um, He spent most of his time in med school preparing for um, a specialty in plastic surgery. And the purpose of that was not so that he can treat, uh, do plastic surgery in Beverly Hills and make millions of dollars, but rather it was to work specifically on cleft palates and people with deformities, because he had this vision of going overseas to take this training um, and to bring it to places where he could share the gospel of Christ into the greatest of needs. And his wife is a pediatrician, and both of them are there still serving the Lord. And numerous people throughout their lives have said, you're wasting your, your talents. Why would you do that? I mean, why don't you instead just stay in the United States and make a lot of money and then donate it. Why would you waste your talents and all that medical training and all that hard work just doing a bunch of cleft palate surgeries? When you think in the ways of this world and see reality in the ways of our world, yeah, then that's that's the stupidity. But if you really see what is reality, eternity, life in Christ, that this world is not our home, we're passing through, then actually their worldview is what is reality. And when we place our hope in this world, that's stupidity. The big big question is, which is true? Jesus says in Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The good man sees greatness in humility. In God, there is true wealth and riches and exaltation. So on that last day, when you are getting ready to take your last breath, when you have your family gathered around you, I would imagine, I hope that what you're not going to do is say, you should have gone to law school. You know, you should have been a doctor. Why aren't you having a big enough house so that I could have lived in, if that's the case, what a tragedy, what a fool. But on those last days, with those last breaths, you will not be thinking about how much more money you should have made or what your children should have been like or what your family should have been like. You will be praising God or fearful for your eternity. Look at what follows verse nine, verse 10. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of the beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. So what's interesting is that it's a progression. When a man is commended because 
according to his good sense. But if you have a twisted mind, you don't follow the Lord, you don't, you're not open to reproof, you're not open to dis- discipline, you become stupid, you're, you have a twisted mind, you're despised. And then there's humility, better to be lowly, better to, than to be this fake, pretentious person who actually really is not anyone special. And then the last part is that, well, this person now is going to be, have regard for the life of the beast, meaning this person's gonna be merciful. They're gonna actually care about all of God's creation. So the person who is humbled before God loves people, is compassionate, is kind towards other people. When you enter into a room and you see someone sitting by themselves, eating lunch by themselves, you go up to that person and say, hey, why don't you join our group? Because there's a compassion. There's a sense of, I don't wanna see someone just alone. I wanna care for them. But that compassion spreads even to animals, if you can imagine. You know, how many of you have killed an ant? Anyone here ever kill an ant? Ever in your whole life? I would imagine that if you say, I have never killed an ant, most of you who are saying that probably, I'd have to talk to you a little bit about things, but I would say most of us have killed a bug before, a spider, an ant. And there are times to kill an ant and a spider. But if an ant is walking on the side of the road, you're outside, ant is walking on the side and you're standing over here, and you went over and said, hey, there's an ant over there, I'm just gonna go and step on it. So you go and step on it. What scripture is saying here is that actually, that says something about you. That if you're just gonna randomly kill a creature and they're not doing anything, there's nothing that they're doing that's wrong, the lesser speaks about the greater. The more we are compassionate and understanding based on the fact that we've been shown compassion and understanding and mercy and kindness by a merciful and good God, the more then I will actually have compassion to those that are lesser than me, my children, um, those around me, the lonely, the poor, the homeless, the ant. And so scripture is saying that actually Christians, we need to be compassionate and merciful even to our animals. You know, Pastor Gabi and uh, Anna, one of our gospel partners in Spain, and I think many of you know, they, they love animals. I mean, they have snakes, um, they have cats, they have dogs, they have lynxes, they have, they've had tigers, they've had like all sorts of, they have hawks and peregrine falcons and owls. And I mean, the list goes on and on. Many, many different animals. And they, they have like, and one conversation I was having with him, he said, uh, their son said, you know, dad, and they also have wolves and, and sheep, which also go on walks together. I think I shared that with you. Anyway, they, uh, th- their son, John, said to Pastor Gabi, he said, dad, we have all these animals, but is it okay if we get a dog? <laughs> because whenever we go out for walks and we go with the wolf and the sheep, it, I just wish I could just have a dog. <laughs> and so because of that, they finally got a dog. And this dog's name is Sandra. And Sandra's a, I can't remember the exact, it's like a German dog. Um, I can't remember the exact, it's gray and sort of sleek. Really cute dog. But this dog lives outside. And I remember the last time I was there, I went and I was talking with, um, I've got someone 
from our church went, and they, you know, they're a dog lover, and they saw Sandra. Sandra has a nice dog house outside, but the dog stays outside and never comes inside. And so the the uh, person said, "Why? Why don't? How could you not ever let your dog inside? You, it's it's so special." And, you could almost get the sense of this person thinking, I don't think they love the dog. But here's this man who is literally caring for every single animal around. And most of these animals had been, they were left for dead or unwanted, and he had brought them all, and he's caring for all of them. So, I mean, it's literally like a zoo in his house. And I'm thinking to myself, you're actually asking this man whether he likes animals or not, just because the dog is outside? So... This man and his wife and his family, they shepherd and love and care for animals because they have mercy for them. But they do not worship animals. They do not think this animal is better than their, their wife or their husband or their daughter and their son, which is what a lot of our world thinks, is that a dog is more faithful than any man, wife or husband will ever be. We have to have a right view but a merciful view towards even those that are lesser than us. A good man understands this to be true. The last characteristic, but the most important characteristic of a good man is that he is favored and free. Look at verse two again. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. How does one obtain favor with God? The Bible makes it so clear it is not based on what we do for him. Everything we do for him is nothing to him in and of itself. He doesn't care about money you give to him, how you serve. If it's not you humbling yourself and surrendering everything to him, then it's but a mere ritual to him. He doesn't care for it. But what he does care for is the broken heart, one who is contrite in spirit, and out of that outflow of what Christ has done, is willing to serve. And so we see this throughout the New Testament, Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 2 Corinthians 5.19, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, and the Lord grants that favor solely on the basis of his goodness, his kindness. He just decides to do it. The good man knows that this favor is completely undeserved and knows that it is everything to him. Uh, Author Randy Alcorn puts grace this way. He says, he tells the story of a child molester and a killer. His name is Wesley Ann Allen Dodd. He had murdered three boys, and he was the first man to be hung in the United States in three decades, and he was hung in 1993, executed. Randy Alcorn and his two daughters, when they heard about this man about to be hung, they prayed for him that night that he would turn to Christ. 30 minutes before he died, something miraculous happened. 12 witnesses, the eyewitnesses that were allowed to be in the galley to watch him be hung, 
uh, recounted him saying these words, his last words. I had thought there was no peace and no hope. I was wrong. I have found hope and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. The people watching were absolutely furious. And they were thinking, this man, the last thing he deserves is to have any type of peace and to even think that he could be in a place such as heaven. He belongs in hell. If there's one place this man belongs, it is in hell. And so they screamed, they yelled. Randy Alcorn, in hearing about this and reflecting on it, he wrote this. He said, I'd imagine the distance between Dodd and me as the difference between South and North Poles. But from God's viewpoint, the distance is negligible. Apart from Christ, I am Dodd. I am Osama bin Laden. I am Hitler. Only by the virtue of Christ can I stand forgiven before a holy God. A good man obtains favor from the Lord. A good man, according to the rest of scripture, knows that he is inherently not good. In actuality, he is condemned. He is sinful. He is evil. It's the starting point upon which we have to get to as any man to say, I am undeserving. I'm no better. Yes, there's a big difference between all of us here than, than Wesley Dodd or Hitler or Osama bin Laden. From our world's vantage point, our perspective, it's vast. But you have to understand it from God's vantage point. From God's vantage point, he sees that we are the reason that Christ, God's own son, went to that cross. If you existed, God would send his son for you. And the death that he died, the suffering that he died, is so horrific. But it's because of my sin and your sin, not just someone like Wesley Dodd, but our sin led to that type of suffering. That should give us a little bit of a picture of how bad before God we are, and yet God still sent his son. Without having that reality, we will always be seeking proving ourselves as men to say, I am somebody in this world. My position, my fame, my children, my wife, my family, my house, my car, my job, all my security is all about me. Because I, I actually think I'm a pretty good man until you realize you're not a good man, you will never understand what it means to be a good man. The darkest place of all for men is to tr a man who is trying to prove his worth by his own power and his own successes. And it is no wonder why depression hits us so hard and sorrows and griefs and failures and rejections and if you're placing your hope in your children, get ready to be disappointed because they won't make it and you'll pour all your angst into them and generationally, that's just going to keep on going. We're destroying our children through our own stupidity. But God loves you not because you're good enough. God loves you because Christ is good enough. Christ loved you. And the mindset, this mindset of trying to prove yourself, it has, it's laid just this course of destruction throughout world history. 
You have to truly believe apart from Christ, you are no better than the worst people ever. At the core, at the core. And only when we know this will we finally cease striving and know that he is God, as Psalm 46 says. Until then, we're always going to keep striving and believe that something within me gains merit, gains value. And it will always disappoint us, always fail us. But instead, God decided to take a good man, a God man, a perfect man, to take your place and my place to be condemned and guilty for our sin on a cross so that you might be a good man and accepted forever. That's our power, my brothers. That's our strength. It is in nothing else but that. And may that lead us to strive, to press forward. And in doing so, you will do it in that which lasts forever. So blessings to you all. Let's pray together. Father, I want to lift up to you the men of Wellspring. Whether they have been here since the beginning of our church to perhaps this is their first day. It is not an easy thing to hear someone tell them that they're stupid. In this world, if that were to be the case, fights would break out because of that. Punches would be thrown, pushes, shoves, expletives shouted. But Jesus, you were the one who, are for, who was first called stupid, fool, mocked, spat on, punched, nails driven in, so that we as men and women, that we would be free from our strivings, which only is such a road of loneliness and depression and grievings and sorrows and ultimately destruction. It is a dead end. But help us to, to see, O oh Lord, that it is in Christ Jesus, in, in our place condemned he was, this good man, so that we would be free. We thank you, Father, so much for your love. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.